0: News stories were coming in about this strange virus in Wuhan, China. It was weeks before we saw the first cases in the U.S. As the numbers went up each day, my curiosity got the best of me, and I started plotting the curves. Here's stories from real people all over the world and how they've responded. I'm Sally Hendrick, founder of Shout Your Cause, and this is COVID-19, The World Responds. Hey Elizabeth. How are you doing? This is Sally Hey, Sally. I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. I'm so glad that we get to talk today because I know that you have really been following what's going on with the covid nineteen situation in a very um, engaged kind of way so tell me tell me a bit about you and what you do and what's going on right now
1: yeah well this is these are some interesting times to um in my field. I am an independent college counselor, uh, meaning that I'm not uh, affiliated with any particular institution, high school, secondary school. Um, And um, so I work with individual clients um, here in Nashville, where we're both based, and around the country. Um, These are some uh, unprecedented times for uh, institutions of higher learning, and um, we're all just trying to figure out uh, Day by day, sometimes hour by hour, what the landscape looks like.
0: Yeah, exactly. To, you know, virus
1: and all that. Yeah.
0: So, what's happening with your business, the college counseling part?
1: You know, it's interesting. A lot of, uh, as we both know, a lot of small business owners are taking are taking a lot of hits, and and that's hard stuff. Um, you know, I'm finding the reverse to be true with all of the schools being closed. Um, Students are having limited, very limited access to their college counselors um, that are on site at schools, and so I have been extraordinarily busy um, with people, you know, reaching out and, and you know, asking for help how to navigate not only the typical college counseling sorts of things, you know, um, curating a list and and working through applications and all the things that we've done in the past very you know in a very standard way, but now um, looking for information, insight. Um, into how to read this situation and how we move forward through these times of uncertainty.
0: So in particular you're working with high school students who are applying to college?
1: Yes, I, my clients, um, some of them are as young um, as freshmen in high school and some are as old as first semester seniors. Um, and uh, it just depends. I, you know, offer a variety of uh, counseling services. So, you know, I kind of meet the students where they are um, based on what their individual needs are, Um, Mm -hmm. and that varies region by region through the country. Um, You know, so, you know, something helping somebody get through their the nuts and bolts aspects of their application process for older kids, whereas, you know, with younger uh, students, it's um, helping them curate their um, curricula for four years of high school based on what they that they want to do um,
0: gotcha. in
1: terms of higher ed.
0: Yeah. Gotcha. So do you feel like there's more stress involved right now with trying to figure this out? Or are the students, you know, tending to adjust pretty well? What do you, are you seeing anything like that?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think everyone is stressed. I think everyone's off, you know, working off a baseline of pretty significant anxiety and stress. Um, and then I think that's true for uh, the students and um, absolutely for their parents. Um, I think there's stress and anxiety uh, uh, just with the uncertainty. Nobody knows you know, are they even going to return to school this year? There's still many, many schools that are leaving it open-ended. So will juniors and seniors be able to go back, you know, and sophomores and freshmen as well? But it's of particular concern to the older students. Will they go back this year? Or what does, you know, what will this virus do to the landscape? And will they return to school in the fall? If not, what does school look like as we move forward? And, um, and, and you know, I have clients who um, are, uh, you know, a large a large, um, population of clients in the, you know, New York city area and, um, it varies region to region, but they're particularly concerned because it's such a hot spot.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, and mm-hmm. I was going to ask you that next about the location of your students, if they were all over or if they were like concentrated in the Northeast, do you have any in Nashville as well?
1: Oh, I do. Yeah, I do. I have, yeah. um, several students in Nashville, um, the Chicago, greater Chicago area, um, greater Boston area, Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C., and kind of Metro New York. So, you know, um, Bergen County, New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, that's that area there, Right. Westchester
0: County. Do you think this is also affecting the choices that they're now looking at? Are they shifting?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, because of what um, the virus has done, you know, to many families' financial situations, um, I think... um, you know I'm seeing a, a difference in students who were working on applications in the fall to where they are now. I'm come one young woman uh, up in the greater New York area is coming to my mind and you know her her choices were uh, Notre Dame, Georgetown, um, Dartmouth, and, and uh, one of the SUNY schools and that was her you know uh, kind of a safety sort of school for her and she's she's going with SUNY because of the uncertainty of the financial aspect of paying for college. Um, and you know that that's going to be broad and widespread and and deep. Um, I think this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, I think schools, like you know, for us being here in in Tennessee, UTK, UTC, mm-hmm. and the other state universities are going to um, become much much more popular and much more competitive.
0: Yeah, I can see that as well. I'm actually interviewing the UTM chancellor, uh, UT Martin next mm-hmm, week mm-hmm. next week so um we went to college together
1: oh okay
0: okay yeah, yeah. um i yeah i recently had a conversation
1: uh with some a student from ut martin and uh and we talked about um how this is going to um probably change um the perception of different diplomas in the in the work field um when, as they graduate so as they these kids graduate and coming out of schools um perception is going to change about everything um
0: and uh yeah I, think he, I find that very interesting because uh, I know who you're talking about he and I actually spoke mm-hmm. about this and I'm going to interview him mm-hmm. as well and the interesting part I think is that with the way things are going online imagine three years five years from now everything's changed over to more of an online course taking situation just for an example or at least part of it Mm -hmm. you could potentially go and select curriculum from multiple places
1: exactly exactly and many colleges um, at this point have that sort of set up kind of in that real-life bricks-and-mortar setting um, Lots of schools in the New England area, that cluster of small liberal arts schools, offer a consortium of education. So you can take different classes at different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's always been appealing to a lot of kids if you're going to a, a small liberal arts college and you want to major in English. But hey, you also are, want to take a exploratory course in engineering, you can pop over. Well, this just got a whole lot easier, this whole you know, um, model. And you know, as I said on a conference call with the national organization a couple of weeks ago, you know i was I was somewhat kidding, but you know, Harvard's now an online school. The model has changed, you know it's uh, everything is different moving forward. I think this is a time of of um, and I don't use this term lightly, revolution in higher education.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, the possibilities are endless how this is going to mm-hmm. play out. The other thing that we personally have a concern with is that one of our children, Actually, two of them are supposed to go abroad, uh, one in the Mm -hmm. fall and one next spring in Europe and in two of the most affected countries, uh, Spain and Mm -hmm. France. And so we don't know what's going to happen with that. The latest word we got was that the Spain trip was still on as far as they were concerned for the fall, but that that would be, it's really up in the air. Mm Mm-hmm but they haven't canceled it as of yet.
1: I think that's pretty standard right now. That's the communication I think most students are receiving,
0: mm-hmm. with the
1: exception of some students I know that who are planning to study in Asia. Um, those programs have been canceled pretty yeah. much across the board at this point. But Europe seems to be still holding steady kind of a wait and see approach.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I, I don't know um, how much longer that will will play out. I would expect until, I think parents and students would need an answer probably by the end of the fiscal year for many of these schools, which is you know June 30. Um, So we'll see.
0: Well we're uh, actually looking at taking some classes in the summer Now Mm -hmm. that things are kind of up in the air, we don't know what we'll be able to register for in the fall. We don't know if we're registering for uh, the Spain courses or if we're registering for something in Boston. And uh, you know, or if we're registering for something online through the Boston University that we're we're associated with. So it'll be a very interesting time. We may be doing the summer classes just to preempt any issues that the fall may bring. Mm
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm very engaged um, uh, with um, the undergraduate institution I attended up in New England and uh, was on a, uh, a call there. And um, there are more questions than answers at this point. And, um, and I, I appreciated, you know, the leadership's transparency around that. Yeah. You know, um, you know, Dr. Fauci, um, you know, says the virus determines the timeline. And so um, there is really no way to anticipate. No. Um, where we're headed. There really isn't. um, And it's going to vary region by region as well, of
0: course. Yeah. I agree. It will vary. I mean, we are so geographically separated and, and, you know, divided. I know that we the United States of America, but at times it feels like the divided States of America uh-huh. with, right. uh, <laughs> with all of the governors having different messaging and the president, uh, going from one, you know, situation to another and, and how that all tends to trickle down into individual mayor's decisions. So it's very, it makes it very difficult to not have a cohesive, consistent approach uh, for anyone to make any real decisions.
1: Absolutely. And I think decision-making is, is, you know, is largely hinging right now on, on cultural, Mm -hmm. um, interpretation of what's happening. And so, um, you know, despite the fact that I, I have lived here in Nashville for 15 years now, um, I lived in Boston for many, many years and have family up there. And it's very interesting and enlightening to hear how they're talking about how they're receiving information versus the kind of information we're receiving here. And it's all coming through different lenses and different filters. And, um, Mm -hmm. and so that's going to be, that's going to make that cohesive approach even more difficult. Um, I think, you know, certainly nationally and in terms of education as well, I think, um, it's kind of going to be each institution for him or herself at this point.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of sad because I feel like a lot of these great institutions, some of them may not come back or may look completely different.
1: Right. They're going to have to adapt and change. And I think a lot of that's going to depend on, you know, the size of the school's endowment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I don't think Princeton's going anywhere. Um, but um, you know, there is a small um, ungraded school uh, up uh, in New England called Hampshire College, which was um, you know kind of a experimental form of learning, um, kind of a, a Waldorf approach to higher ed. And uh, they've announced that they're they're closing their doors. They just aren't able to make it. This was the the final nail in the in the coffin for them, which is um, sad because mm-hmm. it was meeting the needs of certain types of students. Um, you know, right. Students don't have. There's not one type of college student. You know, every student has a different set of needs and, and wants. And so, when we lose a, a school that's so unique like that, it's it's really I feel a, a, a tremendous loss um, to the landscape of higher ed.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, can we switch the conversation a little bit to more of a the medical side of things? I know sure. that that you have uh, dealt with personal pulmonary issues and then you have a child who has allergies. And what do you, what, what are the fears that you have related to that? What's going on in your mind?
1: Well, I mean, you know, um, with, with regard to myself, I um, survived a uh, massive pulmonary embolism uh, about six years ago, I think. And so, um, that, you know, severely restricted, um, function in one of my lungs. So I'm kind of dependent on the one. And, um, when you hear about any sort of respiratory illness, even flu season, um, Mm -hmm. it's scary. It's, it's scary. And, um, and, um, but with flu, we've had very, um, clear protocols and um, there's vaccinations, there's things we can do that we know and we know how the flu operates. It's the uncertainty and the unknowns about this new virus that have been um, unsettling. And so, you know, as a result um, of that, we have been extraordinarily um, conservative and have stayed in since early March ever. We we brought our son home from, from college and um, have not ventured out at all. We do grocery delivery and such. Uh, both of my sons uh, live with very significant asthma, and my older son has uh, some other lung uh, issues going on, as well as uh, multiple life-threatening food allergies. So it's been a time of challenge, um, even you know uh, trying to locate uh, safe brands of food mm-hmm. um, that we can bring into our home for him. Um, you know, we've managed um, to pivot, which is great, but um, but again, that adds another layer of um, uncertainty, which can lead to stress and anxiety and and, and has on some level.
0: I can imagine. And I didn't even think about the aspect of not being able to get the same types of food, we've had to adjust. I mean, granted, we've adjusted from saltines to water crackers, but you know, (laughs) water, what are you call those? Water table crackers or whatever they're called? Yeah. Yeah. So we've adjusted there because they'd had no more saltines or premium, whatever that you call them. But, Mm -hmm. uh, and we've also adjusted other types of, you know, foods and brands and so forth. But I didn't even think about the fact that you've got Food allergies. You've got gluten-free, this or that, and those types of supply chains may be interrupted in all of this.
1: Yes, and that's what we're finding because a lot of these specialty food companies, you know, are kind of mom and pop up op- operations, and so they they operate pretty close to the margin. And um, mm-hmm. a lot of them have closed down. And the other thing is these, clo- you know, thank goodness that we've been able to um, get what we've needed and able to afford it. But there's a lot of uh, you know families who are you know reliant on food banks and there just is no allergy friendly food in in food banks of course you know my son lives with a a, a peanut tree nut one of his allergies are peanut two of his allergies are peanuts and tree mm-hmm. nuts a staple of food banks as we all know are peanut butter right peanut butter, and yeah. so um yeah these families are um are struggling are, wow. are definitely struggling yeah yeah and it's kind of a grassroots network of you know what we call allergy moms who have are, are just getting our hands on things and and just personally sending things to other people so they can have what they need.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So it's, it's been um, incredibly edifying to see that how we've come together in some ways and also incredibly stressful.
0: Yeah, I can imagine so. I mean, you know, you think about it, there's always the laughing about toilet paper and the lack of toilet paper everywhere. It's <laughs> right, probably right. sitting inside all of these schools and buildings that have been shut down and uh, in these major, large rolls that, <laughs> you know, that fit into yep. this big apparatus that, <laughs> that are in these right. big buildings. And... Uh, and the supply chain has not been able to react to that quickly enough to be able to be more so in grocery stores and convenience stores rather than, rather than in, um, the supply chain going into people's works, uh, workplaces Mm -hmm. and to, into their home. I mean, not their homes, their schools. So Mm -hmm. it's definitely a huge shift for so many businesses To be able to handle that. So yeah, the food supply and and all kinds of other things. We were actually looking at uh, trying to order a case of toilet paper from Uline. I don't know if you've ever heard of Uline, but Uline is something that where my husband orders boxes and other types oh. of materials packing materials okay. they also <laughs> have large like super duper costco size of uh uh-huh. <laughs> you know of other <laughs> things that you would supply your building with you know your he has a furniture studio and so he's got right. uh a workshop in the back and and so it's a very commercial type operation and so he because he orders from that company, um, they're not allowing anyone to uh, who's not already a customer to order certain things, but he went in to try to order a case of the toilet paper and he couldn't do it. Wow, yeah. really? Yeah, he couldn't. And I'm like, you know, we could order like some of those big, big rolls and just be like, look, I got my toilet paper in this <laughs> right. really massive roll that you see at the airport. Uh, but he <laughs> could, he, <laughs> But he couldn't. He couldn't even order that. And, uh, so anyway, I thought that was interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. So as far as we've talked through, you know, the lot of the college concerns and then we've talked through some of the medical and food supply concerns. And then what about, uh, the fact that if somebody got sick right now in the family, wouldn't that be a scary thing to have to go to the hospital or to an urgent care center?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The exposure at this point for, um, myself or, or, um, either one of my, uh, my kids would be, um, a significant, significant, uh, risk and, and above, you know, above average. We're, we're all considered high risk, uh, people.
0: Um, yeah.
1: then the other concern I've had is, you know, um, telling my son, you know, be careful. Let's just be super, super careful about what you're eating. Because, um, if when somebody lives with a life-threatening food allergy, um, if you eat something and have a reaction, you of course react with, um, epinephrine, but, mm-hmm. um, the next step after that is being transported by ambulance to the hospital for monitoring. And, um, and so that's another concern. This is not not a place that we want to, um, end up, um, at this point due to, um, you know an honest mistake when you're eating something, so there's a couple layers to it and uh and we just have to be you know very very vigilant and um and so far so good
0: good, and let's keep it that way
1: <laughs> absolutely
0: well, <laughs> we're the same way we've We've been on some walks as a family a couple of times, and I twisted my foot one day, and I was like, okay, I'm not gonna do that again." <laughs> Mm-hmm. So I'm not right, going to be stepping right. in the mud anymore, over, you know, on this trail. <laughs> so we've decided that, you know, sidewalks and other places where really no one's around uh, are a little bit yep. safer. Um, a little bit safer, yeah. I have for to be sure. careful. I'm not running, that's for sure, because I've... No running. Yeah, no running, just, just walking, trying not to trip no on sure anything. <laughs> yeah, nothing. No. Yep. Back to toddler (laughs) rules. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, before we wrap up, what about the hopes that you have of what could come out of this? You know,
1: it's interesting. So, you know, I mentioned before, I think this is a time of incredible societal revolution or potential societal revolution. And I'm, you know, I I mean that in kind of a, um, a peaceful way, not hope, you know, hopefully, um, but (laughs) complete, Complete change, um, maybe rebirth is a better word. Um, I, I, I guess there, I see two sides of the coin, particularly when I think about higher ed. I worry about widening the gulf of disparity between, you know, the students who are considered haves and have-nots. Um, mm-hmm. With this, certainly, but I also think that if people are able and willing to be creative thinkers we could create new models. We could keep the traditional model of traditional college in place whenever that is safe to resume. Mm -hmm. But at this point, couldn't we take advantage of a hybrid model or, Mm -hmm. you know, as we talked about before, the online model? Um, There's going to be such a new set of needs born from this. And um, even among students who are currently enrolled in in certain colleges, Where they were freshman year, if they're a junior now, the landscape is different probably for not only them, but their family. And um, I I hope that the goal of uh, continuity of education is going to be a priority for for schools. I think some schools it certainly will be as much as possible, but um, I would love to see new models introduced kind of you know, throw anything against the wall to keep these kids engaged, enrolled and continuing to learn because that's the goal. Well, however that happens, yeah. however that you know model can proceed. Um, but I do worry about that, the separation becoming even, even wider because there will be a handful of people who will be able to continue on on their original uh, charted course. And, um, and uh, the goal for, you know, higher education is to kind of broaden your horizons, right? And to engage with uh, a multitude and to experience um, adulthood in a diverse and exciting way. And I worry that that's going to be more difficult unless we engage these new models.
0: Yeah. Well, I think that that's going to have to happen. And it would also extend that opportunity to people who cannot afford to go to college now, because if they can, if they can log in online Look how many more scholarships could be given. Look how many more, um, you know, things could be done to mitigate the costs of living in the Northeast, for example. It's much more expensive to live there than it is in the South. Oh yeah. Uh, Or in some, uh, you know, in the Midwest as well. So we're looking at so many potential um, things to reach other students that otherwise, and, and I think it'll happen even in, Our traditional, you know, education growing up, you know, in our elementary schools and middle schools Mm -hmm. and high schools and all of that can really uh, steer towards a new direction, which would be very interesting and challenging in the upcoming years.
1: It would be great to see the playing field leveled in terms of education across mm-hmm. the board, starting from early childhood all the way on up. I mean, that's obviously something that we all know or most of us know that needs to, needs to happen. And yeah. um, I think the schools, especially the private institutions, um, you know, they're in the business of selling, right, these intangibles, the experience, the, you know, XYZ university or college experience. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. they're going to really need to um, reevaluate that and figure out how that experience can be translated into different models. Because um, if they don't, and they don't have a huge endowment that they're sitting on, that could spell ruin for these schools. And so, um, the creative thinkers are going to be the ones who come out of this, I think, least, least scave.
0: So. Do you think also with a lot of the, um, moving into back to the the food part, do you think mm-hmm. also there's hope in Having better access to these food, types of foods that are needed for people with allergies because you know the online grocery thing is going to become more prevalent
1: um it depends it depends um these specialty foods are expensive and, and somewhat difficult to make um they need separate lines to be certified as you know whatever allergen free so um at this point unless these large you know conglomerates like Mondelez or you know one of them is willing to kind of put the money into that um mm-hmm. i i worry about um these little brands disappearing um the ones that i use most frequently are these you know kind of mom and pop sort of organizations and mm-hmm. um where they, you know, and, and generally these people have started these companies born out of personal experience. So unless they get absorbed into a larger um, conglomerate, or um, there's a company called Enjoy Life, which has been absorbed into uh, mandalas, and they're great, but they only make, you know, cookies and, and things like that. Right. Um, and there's so, many, there's so many more needs, um, yeah. you know, for food. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it's an opportunity. But is it, you know, are we, you know, food allergy um, people, are we a significant enough uh, part of the population to have that be worth their their while financially right now? I don't know.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I can definitely go online and tell you how many people on Facebook are involved. (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to food allergies, I could give you an audience size in the U.S. alone or anywhere in the world, really.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're you know, it's a significant group. But food allergy, you know, food allergy, food um, is expensive. Yeah. It's really expensive, and twice the cost of um, you know a a bag of Oreos versus a an Enjoy Life cookie um, box, and it's about half the amount. And so, um, you know, they're they're marketed to people who, um, you know, just have more money, and a lot of people just kind of roll the dice when it comes to food allergies because um, it's so significant. It's just so expensive. So um, I'm hopeful, I'm absolutely hopeful, always. Um, I've been in the food allergy world for 20 years and I've seen tremendous improvements in those 20 years. Um, But there's still a a long way to go
0: maybe you could advise on that one day. So <laughs> who,
1: kn- <laughs> who knows? Maybe so. That'd be who great. Who knows?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the entrepreneurial world has also become a completely different thing because of the online digital world that I live in every day. Mm-hmm. So right. uh, you never know you may be able to, That we may be able to see something like that come to fruition sooner rather than later. Good. That All right. Good. Well, anything else that you want to add to the discussion before we go?
1: No, I think I think we covered a lot of ground.
0: Yeah, I think so too. All right. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. And that's all for today. And I look forward to hearing from you if any updates come about. Okay?
1: Absolutely. Thanks for your time, Sally. Appreciate it. All right.
0: It. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. Subscribe to this podcast to hear all our episodes. Go to shoutyourcause.com to our podcast page for information on our guests and notes from this show.